0: This is a Rooster Teeth production. February 25th, 2009. Turkish Airlines flight 1951, a Boeing 737 with 135 people on board, is about to land at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport after an uneventful flight from Istanbul, Turkey. The crew will be performing a slam dunk approach in the Schiphol Airport and is intercepting the ILS from above. The pilots must decelerate the plane and have it descend at the same time in order to intercept the ILS. Only a mile from the runway and at an altitude of 460 feet, the stick shaker activates and the captain realizes his airspeed is dangerously low. The captain takes control of the airplane, but it is too late. The plane collides with the ground, killing nine people on board. Why did Turkish Airlines Flight 1951 fall out of the sky? Was there an ongoing issue that needed to be addressed? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hi, Chris. Hello, Hello, Gus and people listening. Hello, everyone listening. We're here talking about another incident, another uh, thing we're going to dive into. We're talking about slam dunk approaches again, Uh, Chris. We talked about this once before with the Asiana flight in San Francisco. Well, they're back. Mm -hmm. And we have a good visual representation and... Aviation Explanation, a little animated series we have. Our animated series, plug in our animated show. You check it out on our YouTube channel uh, over at uh, Black Box Down. And of course, as always, you can follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter to get images and just kind of see things that maybe we talk about that are hard to visualize. Mm Mm-hmm. So like I said before, Turkish Airlines flight 1951 was a passenger flight flying from Istanbul, Turkey to Amsterdam, Netherlands, February 25th, 2009. So not terribly long ago. Oh, Mm-mm. almost exactly 13 years ago from when uh, we're taping this. Oh. The flight was crewed by Captain Hassan Tassin Arasan, who was 54 years old, had about 17,000 flight hours. He was one of the airline's most experienced pilots, and he was also acting as an instructor on this flight. The first officer was Murat Sezer, who was 42, had about 4,146 hours. He needed to gain experience on this route, was flying under supervision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since it was a training flight, there was also an, a third pilot in the cockpit named uh, Olge Oscar, who was 28, had 2,126 hours, and he was acting as a safety pilot on this flight, sitting in the jump seat. So basically, since there was training going on between the two pilots, the third pilot sits there and acts as a safety pilot just to keep an eye on everything, mm-hmm. to make sure nothing's being missed because there's instruction going on. Yeah. Always have backups. Always. If there's anything we learned about doing this podcast in aviation is that everything has a backup except for the MCAS system on the Boeing uh, 737 MAX. They they fixed that. That's different now. Uh, So the aircraft used was a seven-year-old Boeing 737. There were four flight attendants and 128 passengers on board. So just for, I, I, I know I made a joke there, just for clarity, this was not a MAX. The MAX is newer. The MAX did not exist back in 2009 when this incident happened. I want to say this was a, I believe this was 737-800 uh, Next Generation. That's some Star Trek name. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you say that. Uh, the Next Generation's been around in regards to the 737 has been around for a while. Because like we've talked about, the 737 has had a very long operational history. <laughs> so there have been many iterations of it throughout history. And the 737, as we know it today, is bears very little resemblance to the 737 that first flew, God, almost 50 years ago now, I guess. Dang. Anyway, we're going to tangent. Flight 1951 took off from Istanbul at 8.23 a.m. Turkish time and started making its way in Amsterdam. The first officer started the approach briefing at 9.53 a.m. while cruising at flight level 360. The crew listened to the ATIS for Schiphol Airport determined they would be using runway 18 right. Visibility would be dropping from 3,500 meters to about 2,500 meters, which is about 2 nautical miles to about 1.3 nautical miles. They'd be making an ILS approach and the decision height for a go-around would be 200 feet. And we've talked about this many times in the past. ILS approach just means they're using the that like glide slope system that lets them know if they're on the appropriate path to come in and intercept the runway and, and land uh-huh. safely. So like even if they can't see, even if there's no, even if the visibility is really bad, they can still fly in on the ILS approach and still land safely. Yeah, fly blind if needed be. <laughs> yes, and that's not the case here. Visibility was going down, but they still could see. So the crew contacted Amsterdam area control at 10.04 a.m. They were given some heading and speed instructions. At 10.15, the crew contacted Skipple Approach, reported they were descending to 7,000 feet at a speed of 250 knots. They were then instructed to fly to a specific beacon. uh, And I say specific beacon because I don't know how to pronounce it. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to try. Spiekerboer beacon. (laughs) (laughs) That was a good... it's a valiant effort regardless. Uh, apologies if, you say, if, if you're from the Netherlands and you know how to actually pronounce that. So they were instructed to fly to that beacon <laughs> and to descend to 4,000 <laughs> 4, feet. During this instruction, the flight was descending from 8,400 feet and an audio warning regarding the landing gear could be heard. The warning continued for about 90 seconds before it was stopped and the captain made the remark, radio altimeter we'll get into what that means a little further because that's that's kind of important. Okay. At 10.17, the warning activated again for two seconds and then about 90 seconds later, it went off for two seconds again. The crew were then instructed to descend to 2,000 feet and to fly in a heading of 265 degrees. At 10.22, when the crew reached 2,000 feet, they set the flaps to flaps one and a speed of 195 knots was selected via the mode control panel with the auto throttle being in mode control panel speed. So they're, you know we've talked about the different autopilot modes and uh-huh. you know, things that, the things that can be done so they're you know they're they're trying to manage the plane coming in on the glide slope you know since they're doing this slam dunk approach what they're doing is they have, they come in above the ILS and then they kind of drop down into the ILS from above instead of intercepting it from below like you can imagine the ILS is like almost like a triangle shooting out from the end of the runway like one point uh-huh. is the touchdown point and then there's like an upper and a lower limit that shoot out oh, okay most of the time typically a plane will intercept that bottom arc they'll intercept it from the bottom and then hit the glide slope in this Uh slam dunk approach they're coming above the top line and then dropping into the glide slope okay so
1: that yeah so there's like kind of a a higher and lower limit you can enter from and as long as you hit that like
0: line by a certain altitude exactly and they're approaching it from the top and that's what's going on they're descending and lowering their speed to intercept that uh, ILS from the top. So the crew were then instructed to turn left to 210 degrees, and at this time, the crew attempted to engage the second autopilot for a dual-channel approach, but this resulted in the right autopilot disconnecting and the left autopilot did not engage. The crew then re-engaged the right autopilot and left the left one alone. At 10.23, they selected flaps 5 and selected a speed of 170 knots. Nine seconds later, the audio warning regarding the landing gear could be heard again for five seconds. And just for clarity, this, this warning that's going off it's warning them that the plane thinks that the landing gear should be lowered. So what they're doing is they're kind of silencing it. Every time it goes off, they're just silencing the alarm. They're not actually lowering that. Up until this point, they had not lowered the gear. And why is it going? Is it going off prematurely? Yes, or it is going off prematurely. And we don't know why yet? Do we know why? I haven't explained it yet, but that this is <laughs> this is definitely a clue that we're going to dive into uh, a little later. So that that's the alarm that's going off. But finally, okay. at this point, they go ahead and lower the landing gear and they select a speed of 160 knots and flaps 15. And then a minute later, they intercept the localizer and the plane started to automatically follow the signal and turn towards the runway. So now at this point, they've intercepted that glide slope and they're they're in the ILS approach. Okay. So every at this point, everything is good to go, presumably. Yes. They were above the glide path at 2000 feet when this happened and the speed was 175 knots, but decreasing and they were about 5.5 nautical miles out. The crew selected a lower altitude and another mode for the vertical flight path in order to let the aircraft descend. First, they selected 1,200 feet, and then 10 seconds later, 700 feet. They also changed the vertical speed mode to descend 1,400 feet per minute. Uh, and This caused the auto throttle to set the thrust levers to the idle position. So, you know, the challenge is, of course, they're coming down, right, because they want to land, but they want to make sure that their speed doesn't increase too much. So, you know, they're, they're, we, and we've talked about this in other episodes. They want to make sure the nose is kind of up. And that they're coming down at an acceptable rate. And they, mm-hmm. you know, they change the vertical speed mode to descend 1,400 feet per minute, which is, you know, a little fast, a little, but it's still, you know, fine. Okay. But when they do this, like I said, the auto throttle goes down to idle. Because, again, they don't want, they don't want to be speeding up. But little, little spoiler for what's coming up, the thrust levers should not be at idle at this point. Are they not as fast as they think they're going? Well, they're definitely, they're definitely about to be going a lot slower than, than they realize. <laughs> So at 10.24, the safety pilot remarked that the radio altimeter had failed, and the captain confirmed this. So there's a couple of different ways that planes can convey the, or can figure out what their altitude is. Uh huh. There's like, you know, an old-style gauge. Just, you know, you you input what the air pressure is, and then it, you know, based on the external air or the, yeah, the pressure outside the plane, it knows what the altitude is. Okay. It's a very, like old system and you have to constantly adjust it for whatever the outside air pressure is to calibrate it to make sure it's right. And is it the altitude relative to sea level or ground? Yes, relative to sea level. Okay, so you have to know what the ground level is on where you're landing. Correct. And then the second way, the more advanced way, is the radio altimeter, which is what they're talking about here. There's antenna on the bottom of the plane, there's four of them, four antenna on the bottom of a plane that shoot out a radio signal, it hits the ground. Bounces back. Another antenna receives the signal, and it calculates how long it took, and it can tell you exactly how far down the ground is. Ooh, yeah, much more precise. Works instantaneously. And do you have to? Does that factor in like I don't know uh, weather?
1: Could could that interfere and say if there's
0: like nah? Okay, but if you've heard recently here in the United States, there's been a lot of uh, uproar about. 5g cell phone signals interfering with airplane operations Uh it's because of this because of radio altimeters oh i don't i don't know that it's happened necessarily but in theory the 5g band of cell phone networks is very close to the band that radio altimeters operate in so theoretically if there's a, a 5g tower near an airport it could interfere with a radio altimeter is that why they tell you to put your phones in airplane mode Not necessarily. Uh, This is more a more recent thing with the 5G uh, rollout. The turning your phone off, I mean, that's debatable. We could probably do a whole episode about that, honestly. We should. (laughs) We should. That's a good idea. But not specifically. This is more recent with the 5G rollout. Anyway, all of this is just to say that the radio altimeter had failed on this flight. The safety pilot notices and the captain confirms, yep, you're right. The radio altimeter is not working. And like I said, there's four antenna two that send the signal and two that receive the signal. One of those feeds the captain's instrument. The other one feeds the first officer's instruments. So the radio altimeter that feeds the captain's instruments had failed. Okay. And that, they confirm it at this point. But the other one... The one for the first officer was working fine. Yeah. Okay. So they just, did they switch?
1: Or I guess they don't switch. They could just look at both
0: of them? Or how does it work? Do you see both of them at once? You're asking good questions. So if the captain <laughs> looks at the instrument in front of him, it said his altitude was a negative eight feet, which is Not correct. Mm. When you're on the ground, the radio altimeter, I believe the spec is for this plane, it's supposed to read between negative four and negative six feet. Negative eight feet is not unusual if you're on the ground, but it's not like within the standard spec. So the radio altimeter on the captain's side was saying he was on the ground, which is obviously wrong. Mm -hmm. They would have to rely on the radio altimeter operating on the first officer's side. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. And of course, there should be backup gauges that use the old style, like I was talking about, that measure air pressure and show your altitude above sea level. Okay. Okay. Anyway, uh, all of that aside, <laughs> they intercepted the glide path at an altitude of about 1,300 feet. The captain made the 1,000 foot callout, and flaps 40 was selected. At 1025 at an altitude of about 800 feet and a speed of 144 knots, the captain started running off items on the landing checklist for the first officer to confirm. Before the last item on the checklist was completed, the captain made the 500 foot call out and asked for the safety pilot to alert the cabin crew to take their seats and put on their safety belts. The aircraft flew below 500 feet at a speed of 110 knots. At 460 feet, the stick shaker activated and the safety pilot warned the others about the low airspeed. Mm-hmm. The thrust levers were immediately moved forward about halfway, but were immediately pulled back to idle by the auto throttle. Uh oh. Yeah. You know where this is going already. <laughs> uh-huh. we've, we've done enough of these. The captain then declared he had control of the aircraft and the speed was now 107 knots. So they're getting super dangerously slow. Mm. The nose was about 12 degrees up and the safety pilot pointed out the speed two more times. Three seconds after the stick shaker went off, one of the pilots deactivated the auto throttle with the lever still in the idle position.
1: No, oh, so,
0: uh. yeah. One second later, at an altitude of 420 feet, the autopilot was deactivated and the control column was pushed forward. The stick shaker stopped briefly, but then reactivated with the pitch at eight degrees down. Nine seconds after the first stick shaker activation, the thrust levers were pushed forward to their maximum position. So they know they're too slow. They right? know they're too yeah, slow. They're like it's, It still took nine seconds for thrust to be put to max power. <sighs> they're at 460 feet above the ground, and it took nine seconds. That's an eternity. <laughs> <I'm> like counting <laughs> four, yeah. yeah. It, it's a it's a long time, and they try. You know, they put the levers halfway up for some reason, but the auto pulled them back. Like they need to have had their hand on the throttle, pushed forward, and holding onto it to make sure it's forward. Anyway, at this point, the ground proximity warning system started going off, and a sink rate warning followed by pull up alerts followed. The aircraft then hit the ground in a field about 0.8 nautical miles from the runway threshold. So pull up so that they aren't nose down. Or because wouldn't that stall them more if they pulled up? So they have conflicting things they need to do here. Mm. They're going to hit the ground, so they need to pull up, but they're going to stall, so they need to nose down. (laughs) There's no winning at this point. Normally, if you're stalling, you got to trade altitude for airspeed. Yeah. But when you're this low to the ground, you have no altitude to trade. So, yeah, you're at this point, they had to. The best thing to do is just level out and hit hard. Uh, I guess. I don't. I mean, the best thing to do is to not get here. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, when they did impact the ground, their nose was pointed 22 degrees up and they were banked 10 degrees to the left. So they were trying to pull up, but they had no speed. There was no power. Mm -hmm. The recording equipment stopped at 1026 and two seconds, 15 seconds after the first stick shaker activated. The aircraft broke into three sections on impact. The three pilots, one flight attendant and five passengers were killed in the accident all three pilots? Mhm. I, I would think the people in the back of the plane would have been safer
1: because they or it would have been cuz they you said they hit the bottom of the plane first, right?
0: Yeah, but I mean think or about there's of the a plane. lot of, there's a lot of structural pieces in that part of the plane that hold it together. Mhm. Like, you know, there, there's rigidity there for the fuel tanks and for cargo and just for safety purposes. Once you're out at the front of the plane, you're kind of on the fringe of all of that. Oh. However, you know, that being said, 117 passengers and three flight attendants suffered injuries and six passengers were not injured. So quite a few people were able to walk away from this incident with, you know, with injuries, most of them, but still, you know, they, they did survive. The investigation was carried out by the Dutch Safety Board And they found, like we said, there was an issue with the radio altimeter system on this aircraft. Mm -hmm. The radio altimeter system on the 737 has two autonomous systems, like I said, a left system and a right system. You know, one side for the captain, one side for the first officer. Each system consists of separate transmit and receive antennas that are linked to a computer by cables. And the height values originating from the left and right systems are displayed on the left and right flight displays, uh, respectively, if these values are anywhere between negative 20 and 2,500 feet. So... That's one thing I didn't mention earlier. It only works, well, it doesn't work at high altitude because then the signal can't reach all the way down. So uh-huh. that's why they use it at about, like I just read, from about 2,500 feet down. That's when it's most important anyway, when you're yeah. you know, landing and taking off, you, when you really need that precision as to how far you are from the ground. Yeah. The radio altimeter computer continuously transmits signals to the ground via the transmit antennas, and the reflected signals are detected by the receive antennas. The radio altimeter computer calculates the height of the aircraft above the ground based on the shortest time required. The radio altimeter system is calibrated such that when an aircraft's main landing gear touches the runway during the landing, the readout height is null feet. When the aircraft is on the ground with the nose wheel on the ground, valid values are, like I said earlier, negative two to negative six feet. The Dutch safety board discovered during the approach, the left radio altimeter system suddenly indicated an erroneous height of negative eight feet on the primary flight display. In reality, the height of negative eight feet cannot occur, but the value itself is within the design range of the system. So, like I said, it's not normal, but it's not necessarily broken.
1: Mm-hmm. But it, it's broken when if
0: it's happening in the air. Yes, correct. You are correct. Yeah, I would just say like <laughs> negative eight would not be broken if they were on the ground. But in the yeah. air, absolutely, yeah, <laughs> Some, something's wrong. Have you ever read the back of a bottle of body wash or shampoo or something and just seen a whole bunch of ingredients you don't recognize and probably can't pronounce? Doesn't that feel a little suspicious? If you care about what goes on your body, try Native Personal Care products. Every Native product is thoughtfully formulated to keep you feeling and smelling fresh all day long. Native is best known for their aluminum-free deodorant. Instead, it's made with ingredients you recognize like coconut oil, shea butter, baking soda. Uh, If you still haven't tried Native deodorant, here's a cheat sheet. It offers 24-hour odor protection, a smooth, residue-free application, naturally derived ingredients, and comes in over 10 cents. I'm really picky. This is a little bit of trivia about me. I'm really picky about my deodorant. Uh, I have to be really careful. And uh, I have to use uh, deodorants like this. I I have bad reactions lots of times to uh, some other kinds of deodorants that have weird ingredients in them. This one, you know, all their ingredients are super simple. And for me, for my body, it works great. My body doesn't complain when I put it on. I think it works amazingly. And I have to be very selective about it. So if it's good for me, it's, it's probably good for you too. So smell and feel fresh all day long with Native. Get 20% off your first order by going to nativedeo.com slash blackboxdown or use promo code blackboxdown at checkout. That's nativedeo.com slash blackboxdown or use promo code blackboxdown at checkout for 20% off your first order. Spring is just around the corner. It's finally time to actually enjoy being outside again. My favorite thing to do in the great outdoors is to hang out with my friends around a fire pit, you know, except for the horrible smoke. But thanks to Solo Stove's smokeless fire pits, I don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, I've been using my solo stove for a while now. Uh, It's really a great way, you know, to hang out. I I use it in my backyard, honestly, for me. Uh, But it's a great way for me to enjoy being out in my yard on those cool evenings that we have right now without getting too chilly because I've got a little fire in front of me. And the best part is it's not blowing smoke all over me and making me stink like smoke when I'm done. Uh, I love it. I use it all the time now, actually. I can't say enough good things about it. So it's getting warm again. So what better time is there to upgrade your backyard with a solo stove fire pit? It's a perfect way to get outside, spend more time with the people you love. Solo Stove Fire Pits are brilliantly engineered. They're made with a premium grade 304 stainless steel and 360 degree airflow system that maximizes efficiency while minimizing smoke. They're easy to light with a few bits of starter. Your fire will be blazing in minutes. So shop now, get up to 30% off fire pits all month long, and use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN at checkout to get an extra $20 off, plus a lifetime warranty and free 30-day returns. Just go to solostove.com. Remember, you get $20 off when you use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN. Guess what? Cryptocurrency isn't the secret or exclusive club that it seems it is. It's because Coinbase believes everyone everywhere should be able to get their foot in the door. So whether you've been trading crypto for years or just getting started, Coinbase can help. Coinbase offers a trusted, easy-to-use platform to buy, sell, and spend cryptocurrency. They support the most popular digital currencies on the market They make them accessible to everyone. They offer portfolio management and protection, learning resources, and a mobile app. So you can trade securely and monitor your crypto all in one place. Millions of people in over 100 countries trust Coinbase with their digital assets. Whether you're looking to diversify or just getting started or searching for a better way to access crypto markets, start today with Coinbase. I think it's super simple to use. I love the mobile app. I look at it all the time. It makes it really easy to track uh, my different investments, how everything's doing. Uh, I look at it a lot. It's absolutely great. I, I can have a little widget on my phone so it keeps track of it. It's great. I love it. So for a limited time, new users can get $10 in free Bitcoin when you sign up today at coinbase.com blackboxdown. Sign up at Coinbase.com/blackboxdown for ten dollars in free Bitcoin. Software's for a limited time only, so be sure to sign up today. That's Coinbase.com/blackboxdown. So when all this was going on, the auto throttle. So we know obviously in what we're talking about so far, the auto throttle was kind of messing with them because it kept pulling back to idle. Were they in the wrong mode, uh, autopilot mode again? Is that kind of so? You've learned a lot. You've learned a lot, Chris. <laughs> so that's what happened with the Asiana flight that we talked about before. So what happened here? is the throttle entered a mode called retard flare mode. Uh, this, so in order for this to happen, there's a few conditions that have to be met. You know, a lot of these systems, it's all logic-based, like if this, then this. And uh-huh. in the case of this retard flare mode, there had to be a couple of conditions that were all true in order for that mode to engage. Those conditions are radio height lower than 27 feet. Ah, you caught it already, <laughs> didn't you? <laughs> Flap position is more than 12.5 degrees. A speed mode of the autothrottle is active, like mode control panel speed, which was active, and the aircraft is not climbing or descending to a selected altitude or does not maintain a selected altitude. So if you remember what I said earlier, you already remember, I, I could tell. Yeah. Right before the autothrottle went idle, the crew selected a vertical speed mode to descend at 1,400 feet per minute. At the same time, the right-hand autopilot, which used data from the right-hand radio altimeter, was following the glide slope signal, which caused the aircraft to trim nose up during final approach. So. All of this to say the auto throttle thought they were about to touch down and land because it was getting data from the left hand side, which Mm -hmm. was reading negative eight feet. Their flaps were down past 15. They didn't have a target altitude set in their auto in their autopilot. So the plane, the auto throttle assumes, Oh, we're about to land. So it does, uh, you know, when a plane's about to touch down, they do what's called a flare where they like nose back and allow the main landing gear to touch touch down. Sorry, I'm Mm -hmm. sure if you've seen a plane land, like the nose is always up a bit. The main mm-hmm. gear touches down, and then the nose comes down. When they're doing that, typically the throttle's at idle, and they're just allowing the plane to come down and kiss the runway. So the auto throttle thought they were in that state, that they were about to touch the runway. So it's like, wow. oh, throttle needs to be idle, and it kept going back to idle. And
1: that's why, is that why they end up going back first, <laughs> like the, with the back of the plane
0: hitting the ground? Because it's trying to... Right, yeah, it's it's nosed up. I think by that point, they, the pilots were also trying to pitch up anyway to... Not hit the ground. Yeah. So yeah, I mean they were already probably pitched up to begin with, and yeah, that is that is why uh, the back of the plane hits first. So it turns out there actually had been a history of issues with the radio altimeter in this airline and in others. And on top of that, Boeing and the FAA were aware this was an issue. Oh. Despite the fact that Boeing and the FAA had been aware for many years that the radio altimeter system was causing problems and affecting operations of other systems. The situation was not designated a safety risk. How? <laughs> that's, an, that's an excellent question, Chris. Reports of problems with the radio altimeter system that could not be resolved by Boeing justified an effort to analyze the radio altimeter system and other related systems. Boeing and the FAA could have recognized the fact that problems caused by radio altimeter system, especially the potential for activating the autothrottle retard flare mode, posed a safety risk. Most of the problems regarding the radio altimeter system were not reported, and the board believes that if the manufacturer had received more reports, then Boeing might have recognized the need for renewed analysis of the system. In fact, Turkish Airlines itself had attempted to resolve the problems through discussions with Boeing and the manufacturer of the radio altimeter system antenna, but the issue was never resolved. Like I said, they had had ongoing issues. Even in this plane specifically, they tried many things to try to resolve it you know they swapped the computers out you know mm-hmm. put more shielding on the wa- on the cabling uh, swapped out the actual antennas themselves but it just kept recurring mm. and until the accident combating the problems with radio altimeter systems was primarily aimed at suspected moisture effect corrosion on the antenna and connectors they installed gaskets and moisture proof wraps and it did contribute in all probability to preventing corrosion but it couldn't prevent the occurrence of these erroneous radio altimeter heights
1: And once they messed up, did they continue to mess up or was it like
0: they just occasionally? It was like intermittent, you know, Mm. and they would try things to fix it then it would start working and then all of a sudden it would stop. It's just like, it's like when you take your car to the mechanic and you complain about something and -hmm. then like it doesn't act up in front of them and they're like, yeah, it's fine. And then you drive it away and it's like, and then it instantly starts doing it again. It's like that kind of thing. And they, at this point, they knew that replacing the antennas generally resolved the problem, but there was no permanent solution. It would still eventually break again, and they'd have to do something to try to figure it out. Hmm. Pilots were not informed of the problems because the problems within Turkish Airlines were considered to be a technical problem and not a threat to safety. This also appeared to be the case with other airlines from which information about the radio altimeter system was requested. I think the argument they would have made here about why it wasn't a safety issue is that... In their minds, it's very obvious when it's wrong. You know, if you look at your instrument and it says negative eight, you're like, "Well, that's yeah. not right." <laughs> you know, yeah. And uh, you know, you you pay more attention and fly it manually yourself. And again, it's not something that's used for the entire flight. You know, you come in into land once you're below twenty five hundred feet. You look at it. You're like, "Well, radio altimeter's out again. Guess we're going to do this by hand."
1: Yeah. Is there not a method to like shut that one off and make sure all the autopilots and
0: computers are? are accessing the data from the other one? Yes, that is another solution to to use another one that's working. But obviously they didn't do that here. Mm.
1: So there is that like,
0: ter- you can tell the computer, don't use this one, use this one. That's a- Well, like I I mentioned very briefly, I've kind of glossed over it, that they, you know, they had left and right autopilot systems and they disabled oh, yeah. the one that was working using the good data and they continued to have it use the one that was getting the bad data. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I remember you saying that, but I didn't, it didn't like click at that time. Didn't click. Yeah. yeah, it's frustrating, Chris. Again, like we've talked about before, there's n- it. It seems like there's never one thing that goes wrong. Like, sure, you can say the radio altimeter was out, but there's like a series of decisions that happen that are bad that lead to getting to this point. And it's not only bad decisions; it's also like being inattentive or not paying attention to what's happening not realizing speed is getting dangerously slow not realizing the throttles had idle you know uh-huh. when even when they gave it half power again not realizing it immediately rolled back yeah and th- but there were
1: three three people doing
0: this right? right i mean there was someone just observing right and no one none of them noticed no no yeah exactly there's it's just it's frustrating i don't, I don't know what to say the safety pilot should have definitely noticed it i mean he did point out the radio altimeter was broken, and the pilot confirmed or the captain confirmed it, but then like no steps were taken to address it and he didn't mention the the what was the speed was low right yeah, eventually he mentions when the speed's low, but by that point they're like at a critical phase, mm. you know uh, who's to say maybe if they had given it max power immediately instead of waiting nine seconds, maybe they would have had enough time to uh, pull out and initiate a go around i don't know maybe maybe you and I can get in like a flight simulator and try it oh. out sometime and see if we see what happens. Anyway, the Dutch Safety Board found issues with how the aircraft was handled by air traffic control and the handling of the aircraft was not in accordance with ICAO regulations, the uh, International Civil Aviation Organization. When on an ILS approach, the aircraft can be placed at an altitude between 1,000 and 3,000 feet. The altitude should match a distance from the runway threshold so the airplane intercepts the localizer below the glide path. This is what I was talking about earlier. Normally, you get that glide path from below. As laid down in the rules and instructions of air traffic control, The Netherlands' interception of the localizer signal when approaching at 2,000 feet should occur at a minimum of 8 nautical miles from the runway threshold. So what they're saying here is they should be at 2,000 feet, 8 miles away from the airport, and hit that ILS from below. Uh However, the rules allow for an aircraft to be lined up between 8 and 5 nautical miles from the runway threshold using a short turn that can be offered to ensure an efficient flow of traffic. In this instance, when an aircraft maintains an altitude of 2,000 feet, The localizer should be intercepted before 6.2 nautical miles is reached. If the alignment occurs between 5 and 6.2 nautical miles, the altitude given to the aircraft should be lowered. However, the heading that the crew were assigned by air traffic control made it so they intercepted the localizer at 5.5 nautical miles. Their current assigned altitude was 2,000 feet, resulting in them being about 170 feet above the glide path at interception. This resulted in higher workload for the crew since they had to lose the additional altitude to get them on the glide path, and they had less time to carry out the landing checklist. So all this is saying, that, uh-huh. I know that's like a mouthful, that air traffic control vectored them so that they intercepted the localizer closer than they should have and from above when, according to the rules, they should not be doing that. Yeah, they came in in a
1: difficult way.
0: Yes, which gave the crew more work, which could explain maybe why they were distracted. Like they, were, they didn't have time to do their landing checklist. It was like too much of a slam dunk. Yeah, they, 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 right. they're like Shaq. They broke it too hard. They, they they broke the backboard.
1: <laughs> that was that's actually an on point analogy, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. So I mean, they, they were you know they gave they gave them this approach from above, but according to the book, they should not do that. When the aircraft was descending above Flevoland, and just after that, three landing gear configurations warnings were heard. Remember, I mentioned that that the landing gear warning kept going off. Uh huh. Oh yeah, because the plane thought they were landing. Exactly. These warnings are not unusual during this phase of flight. Just after this, another two warnings were heard, first above 2,500 feet and the second at 2,000 feet. And the analysis of these warnings showed no radio height was displayed on the primary flight display of the captain at this time of the first warning, as is normal when the system operates correctly. A negative value of negative 8 feet was displayed at the time of the second warning, and the captain made the remark, radio altimeter, remember I said that? Between the second and third warning. So he even back then, he knew that the radio altimeter was acting up. Mm. The information of the captain's primary flight display between the second and third warnings was not known with certainty. The analysis of the flight data recorder does not provide this information, but it's pretty—it's a pretty safe bet to say it was probably already showing negative eight feet at that point, which was probably why the alarm was going off, telling him to put their gear down. And instead of dealing with it, he just kept hitting the silence button for that alarm, so it would stop going off. So he knew that the radio altimeter was messed up. Like he even made the comment, "Radio altimeter." Ugh. So like I, like I mentioned, there were two autopilots, right? A left and a right side. And typically for Turkish Airlines, the crew should engage both autopilots for an ILS approach. Uh, in order to prepare the automatic flight system ready for use for an ILS approach, the first officer wanted to engage the left autopilot in addition to the right autopilot that was already engaged. So the right autopilot was on. The first officer wants to engage the left autopilot as well. In this case, however, the left autopilot had, you know, due to the previous erroneous negative eight feet height, had, this, had saved this height into its memory. So as a result, the left autopilot could not be engaged. According to the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder data, the crew did not attempt to engage both autopilots a second time and discontinued with the right side autopilot. Uh. And they were, this was okay. They were allowed to do this because the visibility was good enough. Like I said, they could still yeah. see. And yeah. It wasn't required for both to be engaged. The board believes that the landing gear configuration warnings and problems when activating autopilots could have been a reason for the crew to diagnose a problem But no indication of this was found. So there are clear indications something's broken, but they're just not really digging into it. And it's just kind of like compounding the problem.
1: Well, yeah, they're just thinking about landing. Right. right? They're just like, oh, it's not working. Well, we'll just land. We'll land. Right?
0: Right. Right. Exactly. When the stick shaker warning happened, there was an immediate reaction on the controls and the thrust levers were moved halfway forward. The board believes this was done by the first officer since he was the one flying. But the captain immediately made the call out that he had the controls. The board believes the first officer then took his hand off the throttles. And because the auto throttle was engaged, the levers went back to idle. Like I said, they should have kept, someone should have kept their hand on the throttle. Yeah, The auto throttle was immediately disengaged after this, but seven seconds passed before the thrust levers were moved forward again. And is
1: this where it's like if there's, because there's, there's two throttles, right? If both pilots,
0: just one of them could have kept it going, right? Well, there's two throttles because, because there's one for each engine. It's not that there's okay. like a throttle control for each engine pilot it's just like there's two levers one for the left engine one for the right engine and like one person puts their hand on both of them and moves them in unison okay that's why we've talked about before like asymmetric thrust if one engine fails you turn you you pull it back to idle and then you just operate the uh, the working engine's throttle okay or yeah if you need to give one a little more power than the other we've talked about situations like that too so when someone says they have the controls you immediately let go and let them take control Mm -hmm. so they have they have They're the ones who are going to fly the plane with the yoke and they're the ones who are in charge of the throttle. So like when the captain says he has the controls, the first officer should absolutely be letting go and letting the captain take over. Maybe he should have kept an eye on it. You know, he's still Mm -hmm. there as well. Uh, Maybe the safety pilot should have kept his eye on it. I don't know. Someone should have had their eye on it and reminded the captain, hey, put your hand on the throttle. Yeah. It has not been determined with certainty whether the captain had his hand on the thrust lever during this phase of flight when the aircraft's pitch position was decreased. So the report says they can't officially say if his hand was on it or not. Mm. In my opinion, if it was at idle, I would say it probably was not on there. Yeah. Because it doesn't make any sense to me that if you have low airspeed and you're about to stall that you wouldn't immediately give it max thrust. So the total, like we said earlier, the total time between activation of the stick shaker and the moving of the thrust levers to the position for maximum thrust was uh, nine seconds. The plane entered a stall situation between 400 and 450 feet and the board determined this altitude was too low to recover from. However, after doing tests, it was determined that if they initiated recovery between 500 and 800 feet, and if they immediately put the thrust levers to max, they could have fully recovered the flight. So they were close. Uh-huh. You know, They were at 460 feet. Maybe they couldn't have recovered it if they had immediately gone to max power, but they're on the cusp. They might have. Who knows? Mm. So the Dutch safety board reached the following main conclusion. During the accident flight, while executing the approach by means of the instrument landing system with the right autopilot engaged... The left radio altimeter system showed an incorrect height of negative eight feet on the primary flight display. This incorrect value of negative eight feet resulted in activation of the retard flare mode of the auto throttle, whereby the thrust of both engines was reduced to a minimal value approaching idle in preparation for the last phase of the landing. Due to the approach heading and the altitude provided to the crew by air traffic control, the localizer signal was intercepted 5.5 nautical miles from the runway threshold, with the result that the glide slope had to be intercepted from above. This obscured the fact that the autothrottle had entered retard flare mode. Because if you think about it, I'm gonna, I'll ad lib for a bit here. If you think about it, mm-hmm. this happened at the worst possible time. The plane entered this retard flare mode when they're above the localizer coming down to intercept it. So they would have to be decreasing their speed and losing altitude at the same time. So it would make sense for the throttle to go back. They just didn't realize that it wasn't going back to hit the localizer. It was going back because it thought they were about to touch down. Oh, so like that's why they didn't notice it. They didn't notice immediately,
1: right. They're like, oh, yeah. It was was doing what it it should have been doing, but it did it too much.
0: Correct. It's it's tough to try to like come down like that and bleed speed off at the same time. And Mm -hmm. they thought it was just part of the procedure when in reality, it was just at idle because it thought they were about to touch down. In addition, you know, it increased the crew's—they're talking about uh, intercepting the localizer from above. Uh, in addition, it increased the crew's workload. When the aircraft passed 1,000 feet height, the approach was not stabilized, so the crew should have initiated a go-around. The right autopilot, using data from the right radio altimeter, followed the glide slope signal. As the airspeed continued to drop, the aircraft's pitch attitude kept increasing. The crew failed to recognize the airspeed decay, and the pitch increased until the moment the stick shaker was activated. Subsequently, the approach to stall recovery procedure was not executed properly, causing the aircraft to stall and crash. Mm. So there's this, you know, they talk about this thing when, you know, you're flying a plane and when you're coming into land, you have to have a stabilized approach. Like you have everything has to be perfect. If you're not in a stabilized approach, you go around, you try it Uh again. And I think I think we've talked about incidents like this before, where it's like even the one we did recently, the U.S. Bangla Airlines, like if, if you're not lined up and, you know, everything's going just right. You're in, you know, you're in the, at the appropriate altitude. Just go around. Try it again. There's no harm in doing a go around. Yeah. Uh, and they were not stabilized. Only time there was a harm in doing a go around was when they ran
1: out of fuel. <laughs> that, uh, yeah. Oh, that. man. You're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> it, was, it
0: was. Was uh, that uh, the last uh, episode we did? Th- that was the most recent episode. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Th- normally, not a problem. You should never reach the point where you're going to run out of fuel. <laughs> that's, a, that's a separate problem. Yeah. The Dutch Safety Board also reached the following sub conclusions. The problems with the radio altimeter system in the Boeing 737 800 fleet had been affecting several airlines, including Turkish Airlines, for many years, were known to Boeing and the FAA. Several airlines, including Turkish Airlines, regarded the problems with the radio altimeter system as a technical problem rather than a hazard to flight safety. As a result, the pilots were not informed of this issue. It has become clear that the existing procedures, tests, and routines applied by several airlines, including Turkish Airlines, were not sufficient in order to resolve the problems with the erroneous radio altitude values. The investigation failed to find a single cause for the origin of the erroneous radio altitude values. So they don't even know why the values were messed up. If I remember right, in this specific incident, out of the four antennas, only one of them was not destroyed by the impact. And the one that they tested, tested like it was operating fine. So presumably the one that was malfunctioning got destroyed in the, in the impact, so they couldn't test it to figure out why it was broken. Due to the fact that the localizer signal was intercepted at 5.5 nautical miles from the runway threshold, at an altitude of 2,000 feet, the glide slope had to be intercepted from above. As a result, the crew were forced to carry out a number of additional procedures resulting in greater workload. This also caused the landing checklist to be completed during a later moment in the approach than standard operational procedures prescribed. Yeah, they were doing, by the way, we didn't even talk about that. They were doing this landing checklist way too late. This checklist should have been done way earlier it's nuts that they were still they didn't finish it. They were still at five hundred feet in doing it, and when their 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 decision altitude was two hundred they, they they should have been they should have been done with this way earlier again, that just speaks to the increased workload and they were behind uh-huh. The cockpit crew did not have information regarding the interrelationship between a failure of the left radio altimeter system and the operation of the auto throttle of all the available indications and warning signals. Only a single indication referred to the incorrect auto throttle mode, namely the retard enunciation on the primary flight displays. So what that's saying is that they didn't know necessarily that this retard flare mode had been entered. Mm-hmm. The only indication they had was like on their display there was a like one little section where it says "retard" in reference to the auto throttle. That's wild that it doesn't i don't know show it more clearly you're i mean you're right, but the the other there are other, um, what can you say? There are other symptoms. There are other indications, namely airspeed reduction, mm-hmm. uh, looking at the throttle levers and seeing that they're at idle. So even if you don't see that, and it's flashing yellow, by the way, it's not like it's just one thing. It's like a flashing yellow, and I believe also the airspeed indicator has a like a yellow line box around it that flashes at the same time, if I remember right. So it's subtle, but it's out of the ordinary. This 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 does lead to greater questions about the best way. For a computer system to get a person's attention, without overloading them, like it gets it really into like the user interface design of these systems, and you know, is this the best way to do it? Are there other better ways to do it? There's a lot to, to get into with that.
1: Yeah, I guess also a lot of times when it activates, it's activating in a way where you it only does it when it's appropriate, right? So it's like it you don't want exactly. to overwhelm with like warnings and da-da-da-da. it shouldn't be like flash, like screaming at you because it's
0: exactly because normally. It's what's supposed to happen right as you land. So that being said, the board also says that with the knowledge available to them at the time, the crew had no way of understanding the actual significance of these indications and warning signals and Mm. could not have been expected to determine the pending risk accurately. As a result of intercepting the glide slope from above, the incorrect operation of the autothrottle was obscured for the crew. The fact that the thrust levers were not immediately moved to their maximum thrust positions in accordance with the approach to stall recovery procedure indicates the crew were not sufficiently trained to deal with a situation of this type. Crew resource management and crew communications during the approach were not in accordance with the standard operating procedure of Turkish Airlines regarding cockpit communication. So, again, bad communication, bad resource management uh, kind of leads to these things. Yeah. So, there are some... Recommendations, of course, uh, as a result of this report. First one, it's not going to surprise you. Boeing should improve the reliability <laughs> of the radio altimeter system. Number one, cool, good note. <laughs> um, the FAA and European Aviation Safety Agency should ensure that the undesirable response of the auto throttle and flight management computer caused by incorrect radio altimeter values is evaluated and that the auto throttle and flight management computer is improved in accordance with the design specifications. So, just Make it a little more safe. Try to improve the autothrottle system. Uh-huh. By the way, there's a few times in, this, in these coming recommendations, I'm going to say EASA. That's the European Aviation Safety Agency. Boeing, FAA, and EASA should assess the use of an auditory low-speed warning signal as a means of warning the crew. And if such a warning signal proves effective, mandate its use. So again, kind of test out like an audible alarm that lets uh crew know if they're getting slow. Turkish Directorate General of Civil Aviation, ICAO, FAA, and EASA should change their regulations in such a way that airlines and flying training organizations see to it their recurrent training programs include practicing recovery from stall situations on approach. This is great. This is maybe the most dangerous thing that can happen is a stall on approach like this. Because like I said before, Mm -hmm. normally if you stall, you try to trade altitude for airspeed to try to kind of get your airflow over your wings to be more stable, to generate more lift. When you're low, you can't do that. You know, normally that's why they have stick shakers, stick pushers. They try to like push the nose down to get wind flowing or to get air flowing over the wings. When you're low, it's tough. You can't do that. FAA, EASA, and Turkish Directorate General of Civil Aviation should make renewed efforts to make airlines aware of the importance of reporting and ensure that reporting procedures are adhered to. Uh-huh. Boeing should make renewed efforts to ensure that all airlines operating Boeing aircraft are aware of the importance of reporting. So again, I think they're kind of throwing Boeing a bone on this one, in my opinion, where they're like, well, you know, no, one, not enough people told Boeing this was a problem. In my opinion, that's uh, that's kind of shady. Uh, not enough people told Boeing that, None <laughs> of the, the that people the complained that the, radio altimeter, that the radio altimeters were breaking. That's, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't like, I, I get it. They want to make sure it's in writing. I feel like that kind of lets Boeing off the hook a little bit, in my opinion. Huh. Turkish Airlines should ensure that its pilots and maintenance technicians are aware of the importance of reporting. Again, reporting. We should all know that. Turkish Airlines should adjust its safety program. Netherlands air traffic control should harmonize its procedures for the lineup of aircraft on approach. As set out in the rules and instructions with ICAO procedures, and should also ensure that air traffic controllers adhere to the rules and instructions. So they kind of got mad at ATC for giving them a slam dunk approach into that ILS. Uh-huh. Okay, now <laughs> I, I, I like saving. Sometimes in some of these episodes, I like saving the juicy bit for the oh, very end, and oh, we're getting a little. There's more. Little ju- ju- we get a little juicy here at the end. So, you, like I said, I felt like some of these findings kind of let Boeing off the hook, right? Uh huh. Well, an investigation by the New York Times' uh, Chris Hamby, which was published in January 2020 in the aftermath of the Boeing 737 MAX groundings, claimed Uh that the Dutch Safety Board either excluded or played down criticisms of the manufacturer in its 2010 final report after pushback from a team of Americans that included Boeing and federal safety officials who said that certain pilot errors had not been properly emphasized. The Hamby article draws on a 2009 human factors analysis by Sidney Decker which was not published by the DSB until after the New York Times investigation was published. In February 2020, Boeing reportedly refused to cooperate with a new Dutch review on the crash investigation and that the NTSB had refused Dutch lawmakers' request to participate. What? So it seems to me like Boeing and the FAA tried to push an agenda here to keep it from looking like Boeing had any culpability in this incident, right? Because at least that's, not that's as bad much. For business. Right, right. And it's not until after the max groundings that a reporter goes through and starts looking and realizes, "Hey, you know what? There's a some some things are a little shady here." And then you know the Dutch want to reinvestigate it, and Boeing and the NTSB say they're not going to do it. Wow. They're like, "Nope." Yeah. They're like, Go "No, away. we already did that one. We already did that one. We're not going to we're not going to revisit it." I mean, that's why wouldn't they? I mean, that's uncommon, right? Like, if they're like, "Hey, we think there's some discredit." I I like- would think that the, in their minds they don't want to. What they would say is they don't want to waste the resources and money reinvestigating something that's already settled. But they're but they're not reinvestigating. They're they're saying another a third party wants to investigate, right? Right, but they still need the Dutch lawmakers are still requesting Boeing and the NTSB okay. to cooperate and they're just refusing to do it. But can they do that? Yeah, absolutely because the report's done. In their minds, it's done. There's no need to revisit it. Of course we have you and I, we've in this in in this podcast, we've talked about other times where incidents are revisited and reopened. Mm-hmm. If I had to make a prediction and a guess, I would say that this is definitely going to be reinvestigated. Oh, oh, you think this is like not done. Oh, I don't think this is done. We're we're treating it as done. You know, because like I said, the investigation is officially done. I'm I'm going to bet that at some point down the road they they're, they're going to have to there's going to be they're going to be made to answer for this. And what year when did when did this request get denied? What year? This was in
1: February 2020. It was only oh. two years ago. This is very recent. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It, sometimes I forget. It just seems like all we always talk about stuff so far in the
0: past. That yeah, that was like that was right before COVID. Right. I bet COVID slowed down the process. But yeah. uh, I, I I bet within the next five years we're gonna start to see more information on this. Ooh. This is gonna be like. is this going Because if if they are
1: like trying to hide this and downplay it, then. That, it that, could be that, bad some, i mean that's some like
0: corruption that's right like, and and we've seen this before remember when there was the gentleman's agreement about the yeah, uh, cargo yeah, doors
1: yeah. <laughs> like about this the doors not locking correctly right and like just uh we'll just I- we'll just issue a suggestion or fix thing rather than like an actual
0: like rather than actually doing it mm-hmm. yeah so that's still out there uh again that's just my opinion i don't know that for with any certainty i don't <laughs> I'm not a pilot. I don't work for the NTSB. I don't work for the FAA. It just seems um like this wasn't as thorough as it should have been. But that's it for Turkish Airlines 1951. Luckily, I mean the the, the best thing you can say about this is it could have been way worse. Almost everyone on that plane uh survived the impact. Uh but mm-hmm. totally avoidable, which is awful. I assume the plane was totaled, right? Oh yeah, the plane broke apart into three pieces. Yeah. I'll post some photos of that on social media if you go check us out at black box down pod since this was so recent there's a lot of actual like footage and video oh, and photos of it oh yeah yeah there's probably is like yeah there's there's a, there's there's quite a bit all right but that's it thanks for listening everybody we'll be back again next week with another episode
1: oh we want uh we have a our friends have a new podcast that you should check out we oh! posted a trailer in our feed ship hits the fan ship hits the fan which is it's they cover uh nautical
0: boat disasters and it's really funny i would say
1: maritime maritime disasters
0: it's really funny. I uh, yeah. I have uh, you know when they were working on it, I listened to the first episode, you know, and, and tried to. I, they asked me to give notes. I felt like I've, who am I? Like I'm not I'm not qualified to do that. Uh, but I I gave them some uh, some suggestions, which they honestly they probably didn't need. Those guys are uh, over at Funhouse are so funny. Yeah, and you should you should check it out. Just search for Ship Hits the Fan wherever uh, you listen to podcasts. Uh, by the time Tell this them. episode comes out, I don't know how many are going to be out. Uh, when we're recording this, only the first episode's out so far. Uh, yeah. But yeah, go Tell Black go Box Down it. sent you. Black Box Down sent its regards. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Bye.